in him, we have redemption. There's our word, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound toward us. That's the Apostle Paul talking or writing in Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. Now, last week I started a new series, a a new topic. It's all centered around this idea of redemption. And in this lesson, I really want to get into, or this, you know, somebody actually said it's more like a sermon. All right, so it's a sermon that's not in front of a live audience. It's just me and a microphone sitting up here at the hilltop, overlooking through these windows, these incredible woods. We've got a fantastic view here. Uh, And and by the way, uh, let me go ahead and tell you about this. Uh, On on the website, there is, just follow the link to the show notes or go to Jenkins.tv for that information. On the website, there's some information that you can download absolutely free on this topic. In fact, you can get the entire Redemption ebook Follow the link in the show notes, absolutely free. You can, you can actually read ahead on some of the things that I'm going to be teaching about at some point in the future, or you can look back and go into the rearview mirror and catch what we've already discussed. Um, there's also a link in the show notes to a Facebook group where I go live once a week, every single day. I've got some things that are posted that I time out really about living... Uh, with less stress, living a life that's balanced and growing and getting the most important things done. Uh, A few months ago, I was called by uh, my friend Dave. He's one of the ULA guys and they wrote an international bestseller and started this life coaching program about a year ago. He reached out and said, hey, I want to give you the opportunity to do this. And if you'll do it, I'll I'll mentor you. Like, I'll take you under my wing and train you in this because we're looking for more people to to help get the word out about uh, really uh, finding balance and purpose and creating what they call your ULA life, which is ULA laws, that word when everything's just, ooh, it's like great, it's good, it's grand, it's all working like it's supposed to. So they have got this incredible material that he and Troy Amdahl created that helps you find your ideal, let's use the word, ULA life in the seven key areas of life. won't go through all of them here. You can get that information on the Facebook group. But if you want to go there, I talk more about it uh, every single day, post something, lots of great interaction in that group. I go live once a week and talk about something like your family and growing there, growing in your finance, growing in the area of your friends, of fun, in your field, your career, what fitness, all important areas of life. And then the third thing I want to let you know about is uh, on the third Thursday of the month, we actually get together, have friends over here at the hilltop. So sometimes we cook out. We usually we hang out for. So if you're local, you gotta you gotta be in Birmingham, right? So reach out to me, and I'll get you the information on how to come hang out. Usually we teach something live for about 30 minutes, just um, about health. To be honest, uh, sometimes it's emotional health. Usually there's cooking out, uh, great patio uh, outside overlooking the hill where done some renovation. Okay, that's all of that housekeeping stuff out of the way. So let me get into the nuts, bolts, the raw material of what I want to cover today, which is just this topic of redemption. I want to 
define it. That, that sounds like raise your glass and toast to that, right? That sounds like an exciting topic. We're going to have so much fun because Andy is going to define a word today. Uh, okay, roll with me. I promise you it's going to be worth it. So here we go. If you read the Gospels closely, there's there's four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the biographies of Jesus. Uh, that word gospel literally means too good to be true news. It is a word that was used all throughout the ancient world that was like a declaration, an exclamation. It, it was a very common term of really grandiose, this changes everything type of news. So a, a few years into it, Christians started using that term about the biographies of Jesus because that really kind of fit. This breaks the mold. This changes the pattern of everything we thought and knew to be true. Now, if you read those four biographies, those four too good to be true, this changes everything type of books, you notice something strange for books that are supposedly biographies of a famous religious leader's life. Namely, here it is. They spend a disproportional amount of time on the events surrounding Jesus' death as compared to the amount of space surrounding the rest of his life. So usually when you read a biography, you're learning all about how the person lived. And at some point, I mean, it's a given. You know, if this person's no longer with us, at some point they died. And we rarely even talk about how they died. It, it, it almost seems like it's irrelevant. Because the important thing is what they did in the space they were walking the planet. But when you get to two of the authors, Mark and John, they don't even tell us anything about Jesus' birth. I mean, zip. Zilch. Nada. I remember explaining this uh, during one of those first midweek, it was kind of the church-type services we did at the Dream Center. I, I referenced that in the previous talk. And I, I, I kind of tossed that out to the attendees there when I'm talking. And I could tell that some of the people that were there, particularly the ones that weren't steeped in religious culture, they, they kind of felt ripped off. Like someone picked up and started like flipping through their Bible, just like looking through the pages and almost acting as if the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had kept something from them. I mean, somebody actually was like, what? Like They don't talk about his childhood? Someone actually asked this. They would often interrupt, you know, sermons, talks, whatever, messages with questions. No, I said, like in the middle of my talk, I just kind of, no, nothing other than the time that he wandered from his mom and dad and was later found three days later teaching in the temple. What? What? They asked, how, how old was he? He was 12. And they're like, he just wandered off. And then, of course, the question is, well, did he have bad parents? How could they let a 12-year-old, not even yet a teenager, disappear? I mean, I mean, like, that's a legitimate concern, right? But other than that, other than that, that episode that happened during the Feast of the Passover, uh, which Passover is completely relevant to redemption, by the way. But, but other than that, like... And other than the fact that everyone there when he was 12 was amazed at 12-year-old Jesus' understanding uh, and how he was able to discuss these verses back and forth with him. And we'll talk about that another time. Other than that, you don't really read anything about his childhood. 
you know, it's different when we tell people stories, we always talk about where they came from, what things were like when they were young. We know that some of those things impress upon the person uh, and create them to be the person that they, as an adult, become. But the authors of the first four books of the New Testament, that's the Gospels. First book of the New Testament, Matthew, then Mark, Luke, John. First four books are called the Gospels. They're biographies of Jesus' life. Those guys that write that completely shake it up. They literally rush through the first 30 years of Jesus' time on earth. Um, They tell us a series of stories pulled from his three years of public ministry, But then, even though uh, John even says something like the world couldn't contain the stories of all the things that he's done, so these guys kind of all pull out like very similar stories. But then they land, and they pause, and they slow way down when they get to his death. Each of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They then write in great detail. I mean painstaking detail about the cross and about the events surrounding the cross. It's almost as if they're alerting us to the fact that there is far more, way more happening in that death than we might have ever imagined. So they go straight to the death. And the passion that's the name commonly given, the crucifixion and that final 24-hour period of his life. Um, you, you read through any of them, any of the Gospels, and it makes sense. Like this one theologian, his name's Martin Caller. Uh, he, he says this, that the, the, the Gospels are often called, this is just a quote from one of his books, passion narratives, so the death and the cross narratives, with extended introductions. Like all the other stuff, all the miracles, all the healings, all the teachings, his births that we read about from two of the books at Christmas from Matthew and Luke, um, the, the baptism scenes that we read about, like all of that stuff is just intro to get to the cross. So as a result, the writers skip most of the material that common biographers routinely share with us. Um, what color did Jesus... Was his hair? Um, nobody knows. How tall was he? We don't know. Uh, was he funny? We don't know. Uh, did he walk with the swagger? Don't know. Was he even a good carpenter? Not sure. Did he have to figure out his calling, or did he always know? You know, they they don't tell us a whole lot about that. Now we can guess based on the fact that he was he was Jewish, he was of Middle Eastern descent. We can make some guesses that he probably did work honorably and with an integrity and we can, you know, that he was humble. Like we can, we can put all that together, but but really we're we're just going from a standpoint of silence. The authors skip all of that, but then they dramatically slow down when they get to the last supper. So like if you're just thinking in terms of percentages, uh, the passion, that's the term, it occupies a huge percentage of their writing space. Like 26% of Luke focuses on the cross and the surrounding events. 26%. 33%, a full third of Matthew focuses on that 24-hour period. Uh, Mark, the shortest gospel, 37% hits it. And then here's, this one's most astounding, 42%. Four out of every 
10 verses, two out of every five verses, more, more than that, of John, 42% of John focuses on the cross. Yet, here's, here's the deal. It's probably, I wouldn't even say probably, it is massively important that they rush and then stop Paul's settle right there because as one teacher, in fact, the name of the teacher is Mary Baxter, and she has this great book called The Power of the Blood. She says this, that that relatively short space of time is the most significant period to ever occur in the history of the world. In fact, like what, what I'm going to suggest is that that 24-hour period surrounding the cross is the basis for living a life of freedom. Now, if you get to the end of the New Testament, not, not the last book, but getting close to it, Peter writes two books. Uh, Peter is, well, he's arguably the lead disciple. Peter, James, and John are kind of the three that are kind of that inner loop that Jesus is with out of the 12. Uh, Peter writes in his first letter, sometimes you'll hear it in church, they'll call it an epistle. An epistle is fancy term for letter. Uh, today, it would be uh, just like a long handwritten letter that was very personal or a long, not a quick one-liner email, like a long heartfelt email type of thing. But Peter writes this epistle. He writes this letter to the church. He wrote two called First Peter and Second Peter. That's the names we give them. He, he probably didn't even title them any more than we title our letters. We just write the letter and send it. So Peter writes that we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That's in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Now, if redemption was a small thing, if it was a little thing, the writers could cover it quickly. But the details of Jesus's blood, as, as gory or odd as that sounds, the details of his blood require a great deal of ink and space on the parchment, though, because redemption, it is, let me phrase it this way, it is far more grandiose than you and I probably have imagined. So that, that leads us to the question, what is redemption? Um, I wanted to discuss how big it is and how far and all-encompassing it is, but let, let me describe what the word means first. So re redemption is a common Bible word. It's a term that we read a lot and even mention a great deal of the time. Like if you're at church, you can't be at church too long until you actually even hear the word redemption. I, I was at a funeral over the weekend, and I saw it just behind the pulpit on, on these huge, probably six to eight inch letters, maybe 10 inch letters, just, I mean, on the wall permanently, you know, thou hast, this country church, thou hast redeemed us, there's the word, redeemed us by thy blood. It's a common word in church world, but it's one of those words we really don't understand. So here's, here's the scoop. It was in common use in the ancient world. Uh, specifically, the word redemption, it was used in slave markets to refer to the price paid either to purchase a person or to purchase that person's release. So if you, you, you were basically buying, paying a price for an individual. Uh, outside of the church today, 
Uh, we see the word redemption. It's used in pawn shops. When someone goes to free their property that's being held by the store owner, they pay what is referred to as a redemption price. And then their property is loosed. It's it's given to them. Um, you might even be making theological connections on these two uses, the ancient use and the common everyday now use for redemption. Now, I remember, maybe just let me pull it from the Bible, uh, now that we've given you a historical definition and a common modern-day definition. Let me kind of give you a Bible usage, how the Bible defines it. In seminary, I learned this concept. It was called the Law of First Mention. Now, that's a precept that tells us that really to understand something in the biblical narrative, you've got to dig deep into the first time that you see the concept introduced. So to understand the redeeming work of Jesus and to comprehend everything achieved by his blood, we've got to travel back to the Old Testament to look at where is the first time we see this concept of redemption. So Peter's telling us we're redeemed by Jesus. So we go back to the first time we see redemption and we find it all the way back in the book of Exodus. And we see that the story of Israel's freedom, it provides us this incredible insight into the life that Jesus now offers us. Specifically this, the first time that we see the word redemption, it's in Exodus 6.6 when the Lord mentions that he will, now, now catch this, will redeem his people. Now, now make, make note of that. Get it in your head. To understand redemption and what Jesus does, you got to travel back to the beginning of the second book of the Bible, which is really where, in, in that Hebraic mindset, they, they really kind of thought Exodus is where the story begins, and then Genesis later written as this explanation, this is what some of them thought, to kind of explain the origins of things. But the, the redemption story was really starting in the book of Exodus, and Genesis tells us how and why we were created in that mindset. Uh, so you, you go back to Exodus, and whereas modern theologians often quote, uh, if you grew up in church world, you might remember this phrase, the Roman road, uh, and look at Paul's teaching to discover what redemption or salvation is, uh, Paul and the other New Testament authors, they take us back farther. They take us back even centuries before the life of Christ, and they all dive into Exodus. So it's there in the original redemption story that God commands Moses to tell all of Israel, I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That's Exodus 6.6. 6. So in that instance, God refers to redemption as something that's in the future tense. It's not yet happened, but it will. Um, that's an incredible concept to catch. So the word, it really is God's word that he declares for Moses to communicate to the people, you will be. They're, they're, they're in slavery. And he's saying, you will be in the future, very soon, you will be free. You will be redeemed. And that's what God meant by the word redemption is freedom. Now, if you look at what Paul writes in Thessalonica, uh, to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, he actually says this, God's not destined us for wrath. 
He's destined us for redemption. He's destined us for freedom. So the, the first time that you see the word appear in the Bible is when God is telling his people, I will redeem you from slavery. It is a future thing. The redemption is about to happen. Here's where it gets interesting. The second time that you see the word redeem used in the Bible, it's in Exodus 15, 13. Now, a lot of theologians and Bible scholars think that this is Miriam. That's Moses' big sister. This is her celebratory song. Uh, She was a prophetess. And this is her celebration, spontaneous worship, after the children of Israel walked through the Red Sea. Remember, after 10 plagues, God uh, had Pharaoh send them out. They are then... Pharaoh changes his mind. They're, they're trapped between the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army coming towards them, behind them, and they're certain they're going to die. And then all of a sudden, Moses raises the staff. They walk through the Red Sea that parts ways. They walk through on dry land. And then as Pharaoh tries to follow them, as soon as the last person walks up on dry land on the other side of the Red Sea, it seems that in that moment, the Red Sea collapses back on them. And the children of Israel are now free. And Miriam begins singing in Exodus 15, 13, that these are the people whom you have redeemed. Okay, so whereas Moses heard about redemption from God and talked about it with God as being a future action, I will redeem these people. Miriam then refers to it as something that's just occurred. So here's what we put together. The the first use of redemption promises that God will, he will free his people. The second use of redeem declares that God has just done it. Okay, Exodus 6.6 and Exodus 15.13. The only event, the only thing that happens between these two uses is it is the freedom. It, It is what redemption describes is that you have a people who are shackled, who are enslaved, and God sets them free. Uh, Years later, um, David, he's celebrating. Uh, He has this prayer of gratitude. You you actually find this same one twice. You you find this one in 2 Samuel 7, 23, when he he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Israel. It had had been gone for a a time, a season. The Philistines had it. And then it was kind of across the landscape, the countryside of Israel, just kind of tucked in people's homes and hiding out because they couldn't figure out how to get the Ark into the center of, of, of life. They couldn't figure out how to get it to the tabernacle. Well, finally, they, they figure out how to do that. It's a long story. And when he got it there, David, he exclaims this prayer. Again, it's in 2 Samuel 7.23. It's also in 1 Chronicles 17.21. In other words, it's there twice. It's very important. It's the same verse. And it says, And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem? There's our word. The one nation on earth... God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name for great and awesome things and driving out nations before your people whom you have redeemed. There's the word again, redeemed from Egypt. So clearly, 
that word redemption, it points to the exodus, to God's deliverance of people from slavery. All right, so now let's shift to the New Testament because what happens now that we kind of know what that word looks like, when Jesus is born, we're, we're told that Jesus is our Redeemer. We're told that He is the one who brings people from slavery to freedom. Uh, for instance, Zechariah, he prophesies that the Lord has visited his people and that with the coming of John the Baptist to be sent as the forerunner of the Messiah, Zechariah is John the Baptist's father. He says, in this event, with this forerunner, this prophet being told that's going to uh, make way for Jesus is what John the Baptist's message was. Zechariah says, redemption has been set in motion. That was in Luke 168. Uh, Anna the prophetess, she declares Jesus' goodness. When he's born, he's brought there in the temple on the eighth day for circumcision. Anna the prophetess, she was a woman who gave herself night and day to prayer, never left the temple. Uh, She declares Jesus' goodness to all who are in the temple that day who are awaiting, this is kind of what she says, for those who are awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. That's Luke 2, 38. One more example. Um, the travelers on the road to Emmaus. Uh, you may remember that story. After Jesus rises from the dead, he's walking this road, and he's walking several miles with these two strangers, and he speaks to them and teaches them from the Scripture about himself and about the Messiah, and that the Messiah had to die and rise from the dead. And they're, uh, they're saying, yeah, we thought that this man Jesus was the one. And they tell him... They tell Jesus, get the irony of this, that they thought that Jesus, not yet knowing that this man is Jesus, that Jesus, they thought, was the one who would redeem Israel. That's in Luke 24, 21. Now, if you go back into ancient world, people living in Jesus' day, uh, when they're making that connection about the Redeemer, they would not have heard that term or that word, that title. They would not have heard that term as just a spiritualized ideology or supernatural feeling. They would have understood these statements to be political declarations. They lived in a land that had been promised to them, um, the very land that their forefathers, like Abraham, were given by God um, and then told they would have after they were freed from Egypt. But at that time, they weren't free. Rome occupied their territory, warlording them as subjects of Caesar. They, they were literally second-class citizens in a land that should have been their own. And knowing that they wanted physical, governmental freedom in their day, it helps maybe you and I read some of the statements in the New Testament through a unique lens. So if you remember... Um, there was a time when James and John, they asked Jesus if they could sit on the right and left hand uh, of him when he came into his kingdom. That's in Mark 10.37. There's another time when Pilate, when Jesus is on trial, Pilate says, uh, explain your kingdom. As if his kingdom was something that had bounds like another earthly kingdom. That's John 18.33. Or there was a time after the resurrection. This is in Acts 1-6 when he's there with the disciples and they ask him, they say, hey, now is it time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
In other words, like what I'm getting at is redemption, even if they misunderstood it. It was a word that was linked to freedom, to freedom from a yoke of bondage. Okay, redemption means freedom, but it meant and it means freedom now in this life, not freedom uh, miss hell when you die. So look, looking back at the life of Christ, Paul reminds the leaders of the church at Ephesus. He says that Jesus redeemed the church by his blood, Acts 20, In other words, maybe what I'm driving at is because of what Jesus did, something is now different in this life. History has changed. Our destiny has altered you and I. We, we've, we've really been transformed. Revelation 5, 9, and 10, maybe one more verse. It contains the lyrics of a song that are being offered to Jesus. This is in heaven. This is a snapshot of the throne. And John says that they're stating as they're singing one of the key reasons why he's worthy of their worship. And the saints that are there in heaven, they all sing in one big harmony, one massive unison that you were slain. And that so that's the blood, right? And you have, presumably because he was slain, have redeemed us to God by your blood. You see? Well, one of the issues that I think we bump into is that very few of us at first glance identify ourselves with slavery. Now, in the, in the news, there's been a lot of talk about it lately and reparations and what do we do, you know, and that's not the point of this talk. It's just the idea that very few of us identify with what the children of Israel were identifying with. Very few of us identify with what people in Jesus's day were identifying with. But even though we don't, we often use this, let me just maybe insert it like this, slave language. We often use this restrained in bondage type of verbiage a lot. Like you, you can almost daily, you can hear, or you you might actually even say, and I know I have, that we're being held back by something. So we'll we'll say things like, or, or maybe you just think it, I'm, I'm held back by my genetics. That's why I can't lose the weight. That's why I can't run. That's why I can't do that, you know, or here's another one. I don't have enough education. So I don't know that. And so I'm held back, or I grew up in the wrong neighborhood, or my parents didn't give me the opportunities that, you know, fill in the blank, somebody else got them, or we don't have enough money to insert the blank there, start a business, go on a trip, do this thing, take advantage of that opportunity. Or or some people even say, uh, I'm the wrong race, uh, I'm the wrong gender, I'm the wrong sexual orientation. People like me just don't get the opportunity that others receive. Now, not putting evaluation on any of those, that's not the point. The point is when we attempt to overcome those barriers, and we do, we strive to overcome these obstacles, we, we often insert some sort of false redeemer into the equation. So you, you think about, this one, how many people do you know? Maybe you did this, right? You you get into a relationship thinking it that relationship will make you not lonely 
it will heal your hurts. I mean, how many people do you know that got married for that? Or, or we seek to make more money or to acquire more stuff or to accumulate experiences that everyone else wants. Or we you know, take pictures of it, put it online to impress people that we don't really even like, that don't really even care about us just to get a little like, share, comment, whatever. I mean, you know, really, this is the stuff we post on Instagram and Facebook. It's the stuff that we think everyone else wants, and we do this to show our value and worth, all by raising our economic status or changing our status quo, at least on a perceived level. We go to school. We change careers. We seek new hobbies. We lose weight, gain weight, get new haircuts, go shopping, get a new style, try new relationships. So Sometimes some, some people, again, no valuation on it, go under a surgical knife to alter our bodies. Now, think back to some of the things I just mentioned, some of the things that we do on the list. And I want you to notice something. Um, Relationships, money, stuff, experiences, um, sharing stuff on social media, school, career, hobbies, Lose weight, gain weight, haircut, shop, relationship. I think I already said that. Surgery. None of these things, this is important. None of these things are necessarily sin issues in and of themselves. Most of them aren't even bad. In fact, you could say, hey, in a real sense, we're glad for all of these. But none of them are redeemers. They can't, they won't bring freedom. In trying to get them to do so, it's putting a weight on that thing that it can't carry. And and though they may offer a temporary sense of relief by themselves, they're just the equivalent of emotional band-aids. You can acquire any combination of these things, even all of these things, and still lose a piece of your soul. Like, in Luke 9.25, Jesus says, what does it matter if you gain the whole world? But like your soul is just empty, right? In fact, many, many of us do. We amass all the things that we think will make life feel worthwhile, yet still we feel the need for something more because we still feel trapped, slaved, bondaged, held back, yoked, tied down, chained. Well, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, just referenced him. He looked back at Jesus' death, and he, he actually wrote this. He said, you, you are not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct that you received from tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus as a lamb without blemish and without spite. That's a direct quote of 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. And, and look, like he was saying, like in the past, you weren't redeemed by stuff. Um, so there's no way that stuff, externals, things that corruptible would be things that can decay or that can burn in a fire. And, and then they would be gone and you would no longer have them. He says that that's not how... Redemption and freedom started in the first place. That's not then how you can sustain it. 
and he alludes that even, even though your redemption, that it affects the life in this world, because that's the way all of them understood it, that redemption wasn't just future. It, it was now. Even though it affects life in this world, it wasn't a purchase made by anything that you could acquire in this world. So he says we're, we're redeemed, freed. That begins now. And we're redeemed, we're freed by the blood of Jesus. That, that leads me to this. Since we're redeemed by the blood of Jesus, since we're freed by the blood of Jesus, it would make sense to understand then, what, what does Jesus free us from? Where does Jesus achieve the work of redemption? And then what, what does Jesus free us, redeem us to? Now, now, most often when you put an answer right there, you know, people would say something like this, well, it's, it's sin. Sin's the issue. Jesus redeems us from sin. But the writers of the New Testament, because it's, it's this world, it's, it's not just miss hell, make heaven when you die. That part's true. So don't, like, don't, don't send me an email or, you know, a Facebook message or post saying, well, he, he said that that's not... Like how, no, that's true. But if it's in the future only, like we've missed this life now and we've made this life just a one long, massive waiting room to, to the future. When this life was given as a gift to enjoy, and this life is practically where you live out some of the effects of that redemption. So, the writers of the New Testament, they say, well, well, Jesus redeems us from sin. Sin is really what junks up and taints up life right now. But he redeems us from so much more. And in the same way that God didn't just redeem Israel from slavery to let them linger in the wilderness, okay, you're free, like just kind of hang out here and wait in the wilderness for a little while. Jesus doesn't just redeem us from sin and bondage and then just say, hey, uh, y'all, just wait, like I got something for you at the future, like, but you'll have to die until you get there. No, he, he redeems us as we did them. He redeemed them to their destiny of the promised land. He redeems us to our destiny of life now. So... There are two words. Man, this is just a definition-type podcast episode, isn't it, right? Two words that really kind of help you understand how big this salvation-redemption-type thing is. Um, let, me, let me evaluate them with you. I'm, I'm not going to rush through them. Like we, got, we got all the time in the world, right? Because you're driving or exercising or walking or doing the chores, and I'm just sitting here at the hilltop, on my table in the kitchen overlooking the woods. So, two words. Um, one is a noun. One is a verb. Uh, the noun is soteria. The verb is sozo. Okay, the noun is soteria. The verb is sozo. Paul uses soteria, the noun, in Romans 1.16. Uh, the gospel is the power of God to soteria. And in the English, it said to salvation. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel is the power of God to soteria. Uh, Paul, he writes that the gospel, the good news of your freedom, redemption is the power of salvation. 
So what he's saying is when you hear the truth declared, something dynamic happens. That Greek word for power in that verse is dunamis, which it actually means literally dynamite. Uh, The gospel is the dynamite of God to salvation, to soteria. If you've ever had an aha moment when you read something, you hear something, you encounter something, you um, you see a, a, an Instagram, Facebook post, a video, you hear something on a podcast, a talk. If you ever have this aha moment, you're like, oh, that's for me, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's dynamic. And it, by the way, it doesn't have to happen when you're reading something that's specifically religious. Uh, I, I believe all, all truth is God's. So he may highlight things all throughout the created order or even things that humans have created with the creativity that he's uh, doused them with. It is this, oh, dynamite, right? There's another word, uh, Greek word verb, Sozo means saved. So we read that. Like Romans 10.9 tells us that when we confess our sins, that we are saved. Confess your sins, and then you'll be sozoed. That, that's the verb. Now, th- this one, that previous word, soteria, it's more like dynamite, like, oh, like, wow. Okay. Um, now, you're probably about to have one of those wow moments once you see what sozo is. Because in your New Testament, if you're English speaker, every time you see saved, it's sozo, but it's, well, let me explain it. Uh, Again, it includes the work of forgiveness, but it encompasses so much more. And because the meaning of sozo is so comprehensive and vast, when we see that word in the New Testament, New Testament was originally written in Greek and Aramaic. When we see it, we're actually forced to evaluate the context that we see the word in. Otherwise, we just shortchange it. So the word sozo, if you're getting the definition from a lexicon, it's going to mean something like this. Um, quote, an overhaul of the will, internal cleansing, health and healing, prosperity, joy, and purpose. End quote. That's the word that when you read your New Testament that we often translate as saved, sozo. And it means, I'm going to read it again, an overhaul of the will, internal cleansing, health and healing, prosperity, restoration of dominion and authority, joy and purpose. In other words, here's the deal. Sozo, the act of being saved, it is far more reaching, more complete, than forgiveness alone. Not not to (laughs) steal anything from the whole forgiveness grace message. So if you go grab a Bible commentary and study the word sozo, saved, that's the verb, uh, you start beginning to see how broad redemption, that's your freedom, it really is. So think about it like this. Uh, Here's a few ways that sozo is used in the Bible. Let me look at my notes. I'm going to give you at least... Four. So if you're taking notes, number one. First, sozo refers to physical healing. And by the way, remember, you can get all this information. It's in the show notes. I put it on my website. And you can even download the ebook completely, totally free. Sozo refers to physical healing. Uh, so Mark Mark summarizes 
Matthew, Mark, Mark's the second gospel. He summarizes Jesus' ministry in this way. He says, wherever he entered into the villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Mark 6.56. That word well is actually the word sozo. It's the same word used for saved, the verb. So it is, again, Mark saying, hey, whenever he was nearby, they brought everybody to get healed. They brought them to get, not sins forgiven, to get physically made well. Um, that's not a one-time occurrence. Uh, the word sozo often refers to healing throughout the New Testament. So let me give you another example. Uh, a woman with a continual menstrual flow, she reaches out to touch Jesus' garment as she pushes her way through a crowd to get near to him. And she believes that if she touches him, if only I can touch the hem of his garment. You, you know that from Luke 8, 47 and 48. If only I can touch the hem of his cloak, I'll be made well. So she aggressively pushes through a crowd. She reaches, she touches him. And though Jesus can't see her because of all the people, he feels the touch, and then he declares to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter, your faith has made you sozo, saved, physically healed. Uh, James 5, 14 and 15, it instructs the elders of the church to pray for a fellow brother or sister who is physically ill. And they're promised that the prayer of faith, it will heal them, that word there that James, Jesus' little brother, uses, that, that prayer of faith will sozo them. It will cause physical healing, and it will release the emotional burden of any sin that they've carried. Again, right there, he says that salvation and deliverance from suffering, it is all encapsulated in the same word. So maybe right here, we see that the biblical authors, they did not make a distinction between spiritual healing and physical healing. It all fit together as part of what Jesus came to do. You see? Um, second, second example usage of sozo is this. The word sozo, it also refers to demonic deliverance. So when, when Jesus encountered the famous demoniac referred to as legion uh, in the area of the gatherings, he, he sent that, you remember this story. He, he sent the demons into the herd of pigs that ran down the cliff into a lake and then drowned. And then the people from the city, they all came out to see the former madman that used to chain among the tombs. They came to see him. And again, he would break his chains and he would cut himself with rocks. And they see, here's what the Bible states. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed by he who had been demon-possessed was, your translation may say, made well. Here's what the Greek translation says. By what means he who had been demon-possessed was sozo. Yeah, the word right there. What happened was he was sozo, which is that same word we use for saved. Let me give you a third example. Physical safety. Um, now, this one sounds strange, so let me show it to you in action. Physical safety. In Matthew 8, 25, the disciples find themselves in the middle of this raging storm. Um, this is the famous episode where Jesus just sleeps through the entire calamity. 
Well, they go up and you know they they're trying to figure it out. They're trained seamen and they can't you know they're in fear of their lives. And finally, they go to him and they exclaim, "Sozo us!" Or as the English says, "Save us!" Now, the disciples were not asking Jesus to absolutely no disrespect to my Catholic brothers and sisters some of whom I know are listening right now. He's not asking the disciples, not asking for last rites or to be absolved of unforgiven sin. That system of Catholicism that put that into practice would not be around for another few hundred years. What they are begging Jesus to do in that moment with that, we're on our deathbed, save us, they're, they're literally scared to death. They're asking him to physically alter the situation. And then you know, oh, you of little faith. Jesus says, peace be still. The storm calms. All because of that saved sozo word. Let me give you the fourth and final uh, instance that I'll, I'll at least point to right now. Fourth, sozo, it refers to raising the dead. So in Luke 8, 40, um, I've seen examples of all the others. I've never seen this one. I've heard of it happening. I've never seen it. I've seen examples of absurd physical safety. When a coworker of mine got shot, as one example, entry wounds, exit wounds, no damage all through his torso almost as if the bullet hit the skin, traveled around beneath the skin, around his body, and then out. I mean, absurd things. You, I've seen it in other instances where people should have been hurt by a, a car accident. Or I mean, you probably can find examples of this yourself. I've seen people who were spiritually oppressed, like example number two, that were freed. All of a sudden, the burden is gone. And I, and I think in some sense, like this might apply to some emotional and other types of depression and things that we deal with even. I don't, I don't think it's just a tidy one size fits all. Um, physical healing, I've seen that. I've not seen this raising the dead. In Luke 8.40, we meet this man, Jairus. He's the ruler of the local synagogue. And he seeks Jesus' assistant for healing because Jairus' daughter is sick. Well, while he's speaking with Jesus, and he gets delayed by that woman with the flow of blood who's like, if I could just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, messengers come, they, they follow Jairus, and they get there and they tell him, hey, it's of no use, don't bother the teacher, your daughter is dead. Now Jesus replies and tells Jairus, he says, hey, don't, don't be afraid, just continue to believe and your daughter will be made well. She'll be made, Jesus says, sozo. It's in Luke 8, 50, where you can find the word. Now, you, you know the end of the story. His daughter is dead. Jesus puts the mourners out like she's confirmed, gone. And then he says he goes in there and he raises her to life, showing us right there that that word sozo, it's used for physical healing. It's used for freedom from demonic oppression. It's used for physical safety. It's used for raising the dead. I've just told you, I think it could be used for other things because the reality is the breadth, the expansiveness of salvation, the, the breadth, the expansiveness of redemption, that's, that's our word. The breadth 
the expansiveness of, of the freedom that Jesus intends, not, not for the future when you die. You, you don't need the freedom then. You're in heaven. The freedom is needed now while we're navigating and doing the best we can on a planet that, I mean, let's be honest, life is beautiful, but life is, it's hard. It's beautiful, it's a gift, but it is full of pain and question marks. And there's a pastor here that, I'll just read it, I'm, Underlined and wrote out this quote, our redemption, our freedom is total. And it covers everything that Jesus shed his blood for, which is every part of us and every one of us. The only way redemption can fall short, he says, is, is if we don't know it and we don't know how to apply it. And, and I think that's where we often miss it. This pastor, his, his name's Larry Huck. He continues, salvation is not limited to the forgiveness of sins. Yet, yet that's often where we limit it. We, we forget that salvation, freedom, is bigger than we think. It, in, it includes the restoration of, of all of life. That, that's how Peter preached it in Acts 3.21, is the restoration of all things. And, and I, I think I might have told you in another episode somewhere that this idea that the gospel is good news, it's a Greek word that literally means nearly too good to be true news, but still true. In, in other words, Jesus has been way more successful at salvation, sozo, redemption, freedom, than we've imagined. In fact, here's here's an interesting thing. You know, when they're in the Old Testament, I mentioned the law of first mention uh, a couple of minutes ago. It, it, forgiveness didn't even make the list originally. It, I mean, since Exodus is our picture of redemption, you should be able to read the story of Moses and Miriam and the people who were freed from Pharaoh's death grip, and you should be able to trace parallels with Jesus as he faces and finishes work at the cross. Because that's the word. The, the, the disciples and the authors of the Gospels are writing and saying, Jesus redeemed us. Oh, hey, that's the word back there in the Old Testament. And we can look at that word, and by understanding that word and what happened in Exodus, we can understand what Jesus is doing now. And the results from the cross and the Exodus should be similar. In fact, if anything, the results from the cross should be better because Hebrews says that this covenant that Jesus makes Way better covenant than the old covenant. I like like chase this rabbit with me just for a minute, and then we'll you know we'll land the plane and come back another day and talk again. So in, in Exodus, the people were all slaves. Uh, they had no ability to make choices and decisions. They had no will that could be exercised. They were bound. They, they were also oddly enough spiritually alone. God. The concept of God, it was a distant concept, a vague idea. It, he was not a relational deity with whom they communed and conversed regularly. 
Uh, it, it had been over 400 years since God had appeared to their father Abraham, telling him that his descendants would be slaves. This was in Genesis 5.13, 15.13, that God prophesied this to Abraham. And, and then he said, hey, they're going to be slaves for 400 years, but then I'll bring them to this land, this land that you inherit, this land that's as far as you can see. But those descendants referred to the Lord as, now this is the quote that you see as a refrain over and over throughout the Old Testament, uh, particularly those first few books. They refer to the Lord as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, the deity of their distant ancestors, not a God that was personal or involved in their lives. And you even see that in Exodus 3. Like verse 6, they're, they're talking about this God of their ancestors, not, not ours. Like, what has this God done for me except for 400 years? Like, we've been enslaved. Like, this faith thing hasn't worked. They, they didn't even at that point know what redemption was because the concept hadn't yet even been introduced. When, when they were freed, though, they came to know the Lord personally. I mean, personally. You see this in Exodus 20, verse 2. He, he displayed his power over the Egyptian gods on their behalf. Um, they declare that in Exodus 18, 11. And there's this relational shift where he's no longer the God of their ancestors, but he's, quote, the Lord, your God. Like the personal possessive pronoun it is a monumental shift. God also miraculously restored their health. He healed all of them uh, to deliver them, according to Psalms 105.37. The Bible tells us that there wasn't a feeble one among them when they left. Everyone was instantly made healthy, instantly made whole. That was part of their redemption in Exodus. Then when they fled Egypt, they left full of provision and prosperity, evacuating the area of their captivity with financial bounty. Though they owned nothing, when they left, the Egyptians became favorable towards the children of Israel, literally sending them with their own treasures and their own valuables is what Exodus 12.36 says. That evening then of the Passover, when they were freed, they became physically whole and financially free. They, they went from week to well. They went from poverty to abundance. And you see in that instant, God can do more in a moment than we struggle to do in multiple lifetimes, in multiple generations. Like grace always outperforms hustle. They were given after that, too, victory over every single place they walked. The Lord gave them dominion and authority back, just as he originally gave Adam and Eve in the garden and we see this in Deuteronomy 11.24. They were no longer slaves. Everywhere they stepped, it was theirs. Theirs to steward. Theirs to manage. Theirs to enhance. Theirs to make better for having been here. And, and they went forth with joy and nearness to the Lord. That's what Psalms 126.1 one says. There was struggle. There's question marks. There are many times when they're in the wilderness and they think, hey, I mean, like, did we come out here to die yet? In the, in the moments of that, there's this also this immense, intense joy. And it leads to this question, like, do you see the freedom they were given? Not, not freedom for when they die, but 
in this life. Like it was that that soteria, that that the noun, the the salvation, like the dunamis, the power of God that was working in the present, the 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 breadth of how expansively God, let's use the verb, saved, sozoed them. That's all in the redemption. It, it, it included things like self-determination in their will. They're no longer slaves. They can choose to do what, what they want to do. Like their life is in front of them just as your life is in front of you. And you were created for extraordinary, not ordinary. Created for supernatural, not natural. You can go and claim the life you were created for. They were cleansed from guilt, from shame. The old identity of slave is gone. They're not even wearing the slave clothes and the things that would identify them as being task mastered because they were given bounty as they left. They were walking in physical health. They had provision. They had abundance. They had purpose and the capacity, not, not just to have a purpose, but the capacity to live the purpose. And as they did, they had this ongoing awareness of their creator's presence, his nearness. I mean, you see, like, if you read the story, forgiveness, which is the one thing we generally reduce our message of redemption to, it isn't even mentioned in the Exodus story. Yeah, sure, their their sins were forgiven. Ours Ours are too, but there's so much more. See, over the next few talks, I, I think that you'll see that the sacrifice Jesus has provided you, it has everything needed for all time and eternity, uh, for what you will need in the distant future. Yeah, yeah, but it's also, it's what you need and it's what I need now today. Jesus redeemed you. He set you free. He redeemed me, set me free. And now is the time. Now's the time to walk towards your promised land. Now's the time to do what they did and cross your Red Sea and walk into the destiny that's there for you. Now's the time to live the breadth, the expansiveness, the everything that is set out in front of you. You see, my prayer for you is that the Lord bless you, keep you, be gracious to you, shine his face of favor upon you, and that you see that the redemption is freedom. It is freedom from whatever holds you back and freedom to the life that you're created to live which I believe includes everything that the model of Exodus included. That you can choose which way that you want to go. You can choose to be what you want to be using the gifts and the skills and the talents that are poured inside of you. I believe that it includes relational connection with your heavenly father, that it includes enough provision to do what you're called to do not to struggle in health, but to be well, to step forward, to not have guilt, to not have shame, to have a purpose and have the ability to live 
that purpose. May you see that you were created for extraordinary, not ordinary. You were made for something supernatural, not just natural. Grace, peace, live your redemption.